Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, 1 Kings chapters 10 and 11. Well, we concluded our last lesson by being introduced to the famous Queen of Sheba, whose name it turns out is actually the Queen of Saba. And more correctly, what we have is her title, not her name. And matter of fact, we never learn her formal name. Now, Saba was the capital city of the Sabaean culture that was located primarily on the uh, Arabian Peninsula. It was a culture closely tied to the eventual birth of, of Islam some five centuries after Christ's lifetime. In fact, the story of the Queen of Saba's visit with Solomon is extensively addressed in the Koran in Surah 27. Now, we got no farther than the first verse of 1 Kings chapter 10 because there was so much in those first few words. First, there was a word play using a series of the Hebrew letter Sheen. Then another word play based on the root word Shema. And then we ended up with the revelation that the queen did not come to ask Shlomo hard questions, but rather to subject him to riddles as a test of his wisdom. Now, we think of riddles today a little bit different than the ancients did. For us, they're either children's games or they're thought of as unanswerable dilemmas, such as the riddle of establishing peace in the Middle East. But in ancient times, they were more serious in nature. Indeed, at Samson's wedding feast, a riddle could be a kind of a game, but it was really about a wager. In other words, we could think of it as one today thinks of playing high-stakes poker. It's a game, but it's built all around betting money, and the outcome can range from merely declaring a winner to building or losing fortunes. But riddles were also a measure of intelligence and cunning, and very often they even had a mysterious, if not superstitious, aspect to them. In some cases, riddles were asked as a means of determining life and death. If one answered correctly, life was spared. If not, death followed. In Greek times, riddles actually became competitive games that had champions and had the vanquished. In later times, the literature genre of parables became an offshoot of the concept of riddles and thus a favorite of the Hebrew culture. Of course, we see Yeshua himself using parables as a means to communicate because they were an accepted, interesting, and, and traditional means to present a profound thought by using a pointed saying that hints at a deeper truth. But only the initiated were equipped to sort through the parable to arrive at that deeper truth. In the case of Jesus' parables, the initiated were those who trusted him as Messiah and thus were given supernatural divine insight so that they could establish the meaning of the parable or the riddle. 
The riddles brought by the Queen of Saba to test Solomon, no doubt, were not about the king making an enlightened guess at a word puzzle for their royal amusement, but rather it was about using deductive reasoning and logic and a wide range of academic disciplines to arrive at some brilliant conclusion. We saw Solomon deal with a riddle back in chapter 3 when two women claimed the same infant. And there were no witnesses to testify as to the truth of the matter. So Solomon used intelligence and cunning to make that riddle solve itself by essentially using the importance of the life of the baby to lead him to the rightful mother. These riddles brought by the queen, no doubt, were ones devised by her, by her brain trust to test Solomon and thought to be unsolvable except by the most extraordinary intellect. Needless to say, King Shlomo didn't disappoint. Now, what would be the purpose for the queen venturing so far to test Solomon with riddles? Why not just send an emissary? See, it was a question of whether it would be profitable for her and her kingdom to make an alliance with Israel. And the issue... The other issue was whether it would be wise and so useful for her to acknowledge Solomon's God, Yehovah, and thus present the God of Israel with gifts in order to seek his favor. This was a standard means of dealing with gods in that era. That's the meaning of the words of verse 1 that say, Sheba heard what was being said about Shlomo because of the name of Adonai. Let's read a few more verses in 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. Open your Bibles, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, to page 381. 1 Kings chapter 10. We're going to read the first 10 verses only. When the queen of Shiva heard what was being said about Shlomo because of the name of Adonai, she came to test him with difficult questions. She arrived in Jerusalem accompanied by a very great retinue, including camels bearing spices and gold in great abundance and precious stones. And when she appeared before Shlomo, she spoke with him about everything on her heart. And Shlomo answered all of her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And after the queen of Sheba had seen all of Solomon's wisdom, the palace he had built, the food at his table, the manner of seating his officials, the manner in which his staff served him, how they were dressed, his personal servants, his burnt offering which he offered in the house of Adonai, it left her breathless. And she said to the king, What I heard in my own country about your deeds and your wisdom is true. But I couldn't believe the report until I came and saw for myself. Actually, they didn't tell me the half of it. Your wisdom and prosperity surpasses the reports I've heard. How happy your people must be. How happy these servants of yours who are always here attending you and get to hear your wisdom. Blessed be Adonai your God who took pleasure in you to put you on the throne of Israel. Because of Adonai's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to administer justice, uh, judgment and justice fairly. Then she gave the king four tons of gold 
a huge amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did there arrive such an abundance of spices as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Well, in verse 3 we read that the Queen of Saba peppered Solomon with all kinds of riddles and and, and no no doubt practical matters of state as well. And she didn't hold back personal concerns either. Now one can imagine that she and Solomon developed a rather close relationship as a result of all the time they spent together. The king satisfied her every inquiry and uh, along with the visual, visual grandeur of this palace and, 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 and this temple, the amazing variety and impressive amounts of imported food she was served, the efficiency of his staff, the loveliness and appropriateness of their garments, she came away mesmerized. She had heard of nothing, knew of nothing, had never seen anything that could approach such perfection of society and governance at every level. Verse 5 in the complete Jewish Bible, take a look at it, and most other translations, speaks of Solomon offering a burnt offering at the house of Adonai, the temple, which also impressed the queen. Now there is another interpretation of that, that to me is more likely, considering the context, and it has nothing to do with making a sacrifice. Now while it's certainly possible that the self-important Solomon would think to offer the burnt offering at the temple, the probability of that is quite low. Just because he did it at the inauguration of the temple in no way indicates that it became his habit and was supposed to to do this on a regular basis or even to show off when dignitaries visited. Now usually I wouldn't even address what is really a, a rather minor issue such as this. But since many of you are studying Biblical Hebrew, this gives us a good illustration of some of the difficulties of Scripture translation. So, let's take just a little brief detour here. The Hebrew word usually translated to burnt offering is spelled ayin lamed he. And since Hebrew uses an alphabet that consists only of consonants, no, no letters that are vowels, then one must inherently know what vowel sounds must be added in order to make a word that we can speak out loud. Now, for those not familiar with Hebrew, imagine if in English we only used consonants to spell words. The word home would simply become H-M. The word car would simply become CR. And depending on what vowels we added, we could make different words from those same consonants. HM could be home, it could be him, it could be hum, it could be ham. <laughs> CR, it could be car, it could be care, 
could be core. A couple more words at least. You just have to know what vowels to add by knowing the use of the word in its given context. This is the challenge of interpreting and then translating Hebrew. Because sometimes the context isn't perfectly clear because of aspects of Hebrew culture that have been lost to history. Usually in the Bible, this particular Hebrew word that we're dealing with has an O and an A vowel sound added to give us the spoken word Ola. And Ola is the chief of all sacrificial offerings that is burned up on the altar. However, there's another Hebrew word that's spelled exactly the same, but one must add different vowel sounds. That word is Allah. This has got nothing to do, it has no relation to the God of Islam, Allah. But Allah means ascent, like in a stairway. Okay? In fact, since the consonants form what in linguistics is called the root word, then by only adding different vowels you get a different but related meaning to the same sequence of Hebrew letters. Thus one can correctly get Ola or Allah and since Hebrew words are related, that's why some scholars think that we ought to be calling the burnt offering the ascent offering. Be that as it may, the point is that if we take the word, in this case in 1 Kings 10.5, to be Allah and not Olah, then it's not referring to any kind of a sacrificial offering, but rather to the magnificent stairway that led from Solomon's palace up to the temple. In fact, in the parallel account of this same event, in 2 Chronicles 9.4, the word that most translations use is ascent or stairway. In other words, the chronicler himself says that the idea is that the queen was so terribly impressed with this amazing stairway between the temple and the palace. So, I think it means stairway. All right, but obviously others think it means burnt offering, but you be the judge. But also now, I, I hope you can appreciate why sometimes there is such variance in Bible translations, particularly among the more minor points. Okay, well, let's resume after our mini-lesson in Hebrew grammar. In verse 6, the Queen of Saba expresses her admiration for Solomon's eloquence and knowledge and that it far surpassed anything she had imagined. Now, the intent of her expression is that usually a person who has great philosophical wisdom or who deals in lofty theories will not be a good administrator. And that person who is a good pragmatic decision maker and deals in concrete facts cannot usually also contend with the deeper matters 
that comes in shades of gray. Solomon seems equally capable of both. We might call that kind of person today a renaissance man. Now verse 9 actually continues a theme that we've seen for a couple of chapters now. The queen states that the people of Israel are indeed fortunate to have Shlomo as king because of his mishpat and zedekah, justice and righteousness. See, the theme is that a nation's spiritual standing before God as a group, as a congregation, as an identifiable population, is reflected in the character and in the actions of that nation's leader. This is not a symbolic matter. That is, it's not like we take a look at the leader and then assume that he or she is generally representative of everyone else in that society. Rather, it is that God deals with mankind on a personal individual level in one aspect and on a national group level in another aspect. God created nations just as surely as he created individuals. So we're all going to be judged on account of both. That is, our eternal salvation will be judged according to our trust in Messiah on a one-by-one basis. Our earthly physical condition and existence as part of a nation will be judged according to the leader of the nation to which we belong. Now that ought to scare you. Thus Israel will in time be dissolved as a foreign nation and even sent away to exile. And this affected, of course, both the wicked and the righteous Israelites equally. That's the consequence of bad national leadership. However, that has nothing to do with each Israelite's personal spiritual standing or personal righteousness before the Lord. They're two different issues. Nothing has changed or will it change in that regard even after Christ returns. Now notice also, although most Bible translations obscure it, that the Queen of Saba says, Blessed be Yehovah, your Elohim. She acknowledges God by name and she exalts Him. The Queen without reservation, believes in the God of Israel. But this is not a saving, it's not even a righteous belief. Because belief is not the same thing as love and trust. And thus, by loving and trusting, altering your life and your behavior accordingly. James 2, 17 through 19 says this, Thus faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say that you have faith and I have actions. Show me this faith of yours without the actions and I'll show you my faith by my actions. You believe 
that God is one. Good for you. The demons believe it too. And the thought makes them shudder with fear. The queen of Saba is now nearing departure, but she doesn't leave before giving an enormous gift of four tons of gold plus a small fortune in spices and gemstones. Let's read a few more verses. 1 Kings chapter 10, 11 through 22. Follow along. Hiram's fleet, which had brought gold from Ophir, now brought in from Ophir a large quantity of sandalwood and precious stones. The king used the sandalwood to make columns for the house of Adonai and for the royal palace, and also lyres and lutes for the singers. No sandalwood like it has come or been seen to this day. King Shlomo gave the queen of Sheba everything she wanted, whatever she asked, in addition to the presents he gave her on his own initiative. And after this, she returned and went back to her own country, she and her servants. The weight of the gold Shlomo received annually came to 22 tons of gold. And besides that, which came from sales taxes, customs duties, assessments collected by all the kings of the mixed peoples and by the district governors. King Shlomo made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 15 pounds of gold went into one shield. He made 300 more shields of hammered gold with three and three quarters pounds going into one shield. The king put these in the house of the Lebanon forest. The king also made a large throne of ivory, overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, a back with a rounded top, arms on either side of the seat, two lions standing beside the arms, twelve more lions standing on each side of the six steps. Nothing like it had been made in any kingdom. All King Shlomo's drinking vessels were of gold. All the utensils in the house of the Lebanon forest were of pure gold. None was of silver. For in Solomon's time, it was regarded as having little value. The king had a large fleet of Tarsh, uh, had a fleet of large Tarshish ships, along with Hiram's fleet. Once every three years, the Tarshish fleet came in, bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. The mention of Hiram's fleet suggests that one way or another, Hiram owned a fleet of ships that operated in the Red Sea. Now, I, I can only offer the conjecture that would seem to follow a familiar pattern in Solomon's dealing with Hiram. It is that in exchange for Hiram supplying workers and materials to build Solomon's fleet at Elat, Hiram also received some of the ships as payment. And this formed his own personal fleet of ships. Now, some have suggested that Hiram may have actually disassembled ships, sent them over land from the Mediterranean Sea to a lot, and they were reassembled there. That seems to be a little bit over the top. But in any case, Hiram's fleet would have been operated by Hiram's sailors, and so the gold, precious gems, special wood that arrived in Israel, well, this was in no way a gift. Okay. It was merely designated for Solomon, and he would have purchased it from Hiram. 
Then we're told that Solomon showered expensive gifts upon the Queen of Sheba. She loads up these gifts of friendship and departs. Now understand, in the Oriental custom, Solomon had to give her gifts in return for the one she brought to him in approximately the same value or it would have been dishonoring and it would have brought shame upon the queen. This was not the making of an alliance. At least not yet. Marriage, not gifts, created alliances. The rabbis point out something that dovetails well with those passages that we read just a moment ago in the New Testament book of James. The queen came to Shlomo to satisfy her desire for wisdom. But once attained, she turned and went back home, she and her entire entourage. Part of that new wisdom that she attained was that the God of Israel was an awesome and existent God. Yet there is no mention of any of them converting or even of any of them remaining in the land. Her new and firm belief that the God of Israel existed, that He was active, powerful, changed nothing in her life. She returned home to her pagan ways, stayed devoted to her idol worship. How many folks today feel an emptiness inside their souls? They go as a seeker to a church. They have some kind of experience. They go home saying now that they believe in God. They're certain that if there's a heaven, they'll be there someday. And most will do just, just as the Queen of Saba did. When that experience is over, they'll quickly return home, back to their old ways, utterly unchanged in their daily life, but perhaps dangerously believing that they have gained harmony and peace with God. Verse 14 says something quite remarkable. And it concerns the amount of gold that Solomon received annually. If, like the complete Jewish Bible, your Bible converts the amount stated in the Bible to, or in the original, to a more modern measure, tons, then it obscures a very important fact. Our complete Jewish Bible says 22 tons. But in the original Hebrew, it says 666 talents of gold. Yep, there's that number, 666. And its symbolism cannot just be ignored. In Judaism, 666 is a, is a mystery number. Vilna Gaon's commentary in the Zohar states that while no one knows the secret of this mystery number 666, that it does have something to do with the messianic age to come. In Bible numerology, six is equal to the, to the physical world. All right? And 
it's also known as the symbolic number of mankind. Thus the sages say that 666 represents the peak of the strength and the perfection of the physical world. That is, the physical world has reached its zenith or its ultimate of whatever it can ever be. The 666 talents of gold that Solomon would receive each year then represents that everything that could be extracted from the world in wealth and power and glory was extracted by Solomon. And of course, the source of this gold was from everywhere in the world except God's kingdom. This blessing of abundance all came from the hands of men, not the hand of God. For Solomon and for God's people, it's the wrong kind of abundance to seek. It's the wrong kind of abundance to accumulate. And Solomon desired it, and he received more of it than any man in history up to his time. Even with all that gold, he still wasn't satisfied. So he taxed the sales of businesses and merchants. He taxed goods that merely crossed through his territory but were destined for someplace else. He assessed all the petty kings and governors of the various mixed people groups that he allowed to live in peace on Israeli land. The luxury of Solomon's kingdom turned to opulence, the opulence to decadence. He made hundreds of golden shields, military-looking armaments that would certainly never see a battlefield, but they were only for a display of his wealth. And he put them all in his palace to impress his visitors. He made a throne for his royal self that was inlaid with ivory and gold. The approach to the throne had six steps and each step had a pair of lions at the edges. He drank from goblets of pure gold. His personal eating utensils were of pure gold. In fact, he used so much gold that silver was looked down upon, it wasn't any more valuable than paving stones for the streets. He created a fleet of so-called Tarshish ships. Now, depending on your translation, the word Tarshish can imply that the ships were meant to sail to and from Tarshish, but that's not correct. Tarshish is on the coast of modern-day Spain in the Mediterranean. Rather see, the sense of it is that a Tarshish was a specific design of a ship. It was a large kind, especially it was an especially sturdy vessel that was designed for the open seas. And it needed to be large because it was made for long voyages that would then return with much cargo. Solomon's fleet and Hiram's fleet sailed together, no doubt, into the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean, probably into the Persian Gulf. Apes peacocks and ivory 
which are listed here as among the cargo, were not to be found anywhere in the Mediterranean. These were all native to Africa. So this for certain was a Red Sea fleet of ships that's being talked about here. Well, let's read the final verses of uh, chapter 10. We'll start at 23. So King Shlomo surpassed all the kings on earth in both wealth and wisdom. All the earth sought to have an audience with Shlomo in order to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Each one brought his present, articles of silver, articles of gold, clothing, armor, spices, horses, mules, and this continued year after year. Shlomo amassed chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. He assigned them to the chariot cities and to the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver in Jerusalem as common as stones. He made cedars as abundant as sycamore fig trees are in the Shephelah. Shlomo's horses had been brought from Egypt and from Keveh, with the king's agents having brought them, bought them from the dealers in Keveh at the going price. A chariot from Egypt cost 15 pounds of silver shekels and a horse three and three quarter pounds of shekels. All the kings of the Hittites, the kings from Aram, purchased them at these prices through Solomon's agents. Well, as Solomon's fame spread... Leaders of nations and wealthy aristocrats naturally wanted to be seen with him. So they ventured from all over the known world just to come and view the spectacular buildings and vast wealth in such a well-ordered society. They all wanted to be just like Solomon. But if one wants to see the most sought-after monarch in the world... One must bring stunning gifts that purchase an audience. Well, this was yet another source of wealth for Solomon. Now, naturally, as Israel gained wealth, they had to protect it. So King Shlomo built fortresses. He built military bases at strategic locations. The most fearsome weapon of the day was chariots. And Solomon amassed a huge arsenal of them. Egypt was the primary source of horses in that region. And so naturally, with his special relationship with Pharaoh Siamun, his father-in-law, Solomon obtained the best horses at wholesale prices. He cornered the market. And thus, when other kings and potentates around the Middle East wanted to emulate Solomon, they had to come to him to buy their horses and their chariots. Solomon not only built up a huge chariot force for Israel, he became an arms broker. And he controlled the supply of chariots and trained horses throughout the region. Solomon was very possibly the most powerful leader in the known world in his era. And we're going to soon see It was all for only a very short time before it all came to ruin. Let's move on to 1 Kings chapter 11.
King Shlomo loved many foreign women besides the daughter of Pharaoh. There were women from the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites, nations about which Adonai had said to the people of Israel, you are not to go among them or they among you because they will turn your hearts away towards their gods. But Shlomo was deeply attached to them by his love. He had 700 wives, all princesses, 300 concubines. His wives turned his heart away. For when Shlomo became old, his wives turned his heart towards other gods, so that he was not wholehearted with Adonai his god, as David his father had been. For Shlomo followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Thus Shlomo did what was evil in Adonai's view. He did not fully follow Adonai as David his father had done. Shlomo built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill in front of Jerusalem, and another one for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. This is what he did for all of his foreign wives, who then offered in sacrifice to their gods. So Adonai grew angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Adonai, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice had given him orders concerning this matter that he should not follow other gods. But he didn't obey Adonai's orders. So Adonai said to Shlomo, since this is what has been in your mind and you haven't kept my covenant and my regulations which I ordered you to obey, I will tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. However, for David your father's sake, I won't do it while you're alive. But I will tear it away from your son. Even then I won't tear away all the kingdom. I'll give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Yerushalayim, which I have chosen. Then Adonai raised up an adversary against Shlomo, Hadad the Edomite of the royal line of Edom. Back when David had been in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the dead, having killed every male in Edom, because Joab and all of Israel had stayed there six months until he eliminated every male in Edom, Hadad had fled. He and a number of Edomite servants of his father's with him, and they'd gone to Egypt. At the time, Hadad had been but a small boy. And on their way, they passed through Midian, and they arrived in Paran and took with them men from Paran and went on into Egypt to Pharaoh the king of Egypt. He gave Hadad a house. He saw to it that he had food and gave him land. And Hadad became, became a great favorite of Pharaoh so that he gave him his own wife's sister in marriage, that is, the sister of Tahapshpanis, the queen. The sister of Tahapshpanis bore him Genuvat, his son, and Topshpanes brought him up in Pharaoh's own house, so that Ginevat was in Pharaoh's house along with Pharaoh's sons. And when Hadad in Egypt heard that David slept with his ancestors, and Joab the commander of the army was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me leave so that I can return to my own country. And Pharaoh asked him, But what have you lacked with me that makes you want just now to go to your own country? Nothing in particular, he replied, but let me leave anyway. And God raised up another adversary against Shlomo, Rezon, the son of El-Yadah, who had fled from his lord Hadad-Azer, king of Zovah, when David killed the men from Zovah. 
Rezon rallied men to himself and became the leader of a band of marauders. They went to Damasek and settled there while he became king, king of Damascus. He remained an adversary as long as Shlomo lived, causing difficulties in addition to those of Hadad. He detested Israel and he ruled Aram. Also, Yarovam, the son of Nevat, Jeroboam, and Ephrati from Sreda, whose mother's name was Zeruah, one of Shlomo's servants, rebelled against the king. Here is the reason he rebelled against the king. Solomon was building the Milo and closing the breach in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now this Jeroboam was a strong, energetic man, and Solomon, seeing how serious this young man was, made him a supervisor over all the work being done by the tribe of Joseph. And once during this period when Jeroboam had gone out to Jerusalem, the prophet Ahiah from Shiloh spotted him traveling. Ahiah was wearing a new cloak, and the two of them were alone in open country, and Ahiah took hold of his new cloak that he was wearing, and he tore it into twelve pieces. And then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself. For here is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Shlomo's hand and I will give ten tribes to you. But he will keep one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Yerushalayim, the city I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. I will do this because they have abandoned me and they've worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zenonites, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. They haven't lived according to my ways, so that they could do what was right in my view and obey my regulations and rulings, as did David his father. Nevertheless, I will not take the entire kingdom away from him, but I will make him prince as long as he lives, for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, because he obeyed my commandments and my regulations. However, I will take the kingdom away from his son and give ten tribes of it to you. To his son I will give one tribe so that David, my servant, will always have a light burning before me in Jerusalem, the city I chose for myself as the place to put my name. I will take you and you will rule over everything you want. You will be king over Israel. Now if you will listen to all that I order you, live according to my ways and do what is right in my view, so that you observe my regulations and mitzvot, as David my servant did, then I'll be with you and I will build you a lasting dynasty as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. For this offense I will trouble David's descendants, but not forever. Because of this Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam roused himself, fled to Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and stayed in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Other activities of Solomon, all he accomplished in his wisdom, are recorded in the annals of Shlomo. The length of Shlomo's reign in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon slept with his ancestors and he was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehavam, his son, Rehoboam, his son, became king in his place. Now this is one of these chapters that Judaism has gone a long way to try to find ways around. 
They prefer to label God's judgments and pronouncements against Solomon as criticisms and to ignore statements that Solomon descended into deep idolatry, did what was evil in God's eyes, and instead they say that Solomon remained righteous, but he was just a bad boy sometimes. What we read, however, says something quite different. The Lord had kept his promise to Solomon of giving him what he had asked for in God's first appearance to Solomon at Gibeon, the beginning of his reign. The new king asked the Lord for wisdom. The Lord gave it to him in abundance. But Jehovah told Solomon that he would also give him great wealth because he didn't ask for it. Early on, Solomon indeed attained a large measure of wealth. But it only seemed to whet his appetite for more. It became obvious that what the Lord had offered Shlomo as a heavenly blessing turned into an uncontrollable lust and greed for what Shlomo could glean for himself from anyone and everyone. But the Lord's blessings had come with a condition. Solomon was to be obedient to the Lord. He was to maintain himself operating on a high spiritual plane. Because he was made king of Israel at a time when David had conquered most of his enemies, so he handed over to Solomon a peaceful, a substantial kingdom. Young Shlomo began his reign at the highest spiritual level. He was determined to build and complete a temple to Jehovah as his first major endeavor. And he devoted himself to that effort. But from there forward, it became a race to the bottom. The first verses speak of Solomon's infamy that turned to amassing an enormous harem. He is said to have loved many foreign wives. Now one could argue if loving that many women simultaneously is even humanly possible. But the word used here is Ahab. And Ahab is indeed properly translated as love. We are plainly told that he married Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Hittite women, as well as women from Sidon. Of course, this was King Hiram's nation. This was firmly against the Torah law. And the main concern the Lord had that caused him to outlaw these marriages was that these foreign women might turn the Israelites' hearts towards false gods and away from Jehovah. But as verse 2 ends, we're told, but Shlomo was deeply attached to them by his love. All 1,000 of them. Now let's be clear about what's being said. Solomon let his own feelings and definition of love override God's laws. Solomon was a brilliant man. He had a stellar royal court of the finest minds who knew the Torah well. The king knew 
that marrying these women was indefensible, legally speaking, but it didn't matter. He felt that he loved them all and he wasn't about to give even one of them up. And we find out, as we read the Song of Solomon, King Shlomo was an incurable romantic. He was absolutely in love with love. Where love was involved, little else mattered. After all, God's a God of love, right? So if we love something or someone especially, then that love rises above everything else. God's laws and commandments become secondary to our decisions. Solomon is the perfect Old Testament example of a modern New Testament believer who thinks incorrectly that salvation means that whatever we love we feel replaces obedience and it renders it not only obsolete but undesirable. Verse 3 tells us he married 700 wives and maintained 300 concubines. A wife is fully married according to the laws of Torah and such a marriage can only be ended with a get, a a divorce document. A concubine did not receive a marriage document. She didn't qualify for a get if he was through with her. And yet her husband was obligated to care for her and she may not live or consort with another man. See, Solomon's polygamy was not the only Torah commandment concerning Israel's kings that he broke. Deuteronomy 17, 16 and 17 says this, speaking of Israel's kings, however he is not to acquire many horses for himself or have the people return to Egypt to obtain more horses inasmuch as Adonai told you to never go back that way again. Likewise he's not to acquire very many wives for himself so that his heart will not turn away and he's not to acquire excessive quantities of silver and gold. Well the previous chapter spent a goodly amount of time itemizing the vast amounts of gold and silver that Solomon had obtained, much of it purchased upon the backs of forced laborers whose work was taxes, and of this extensive army of chariots and horses he had built up. Further, that he led his people back to Egypt in every imaginable way, including having an Egyptian wife that appears to have been his favorite, and the one above all his other wives, and all of this creating an almost sister-state alliance with Egypt, and then buying all of his horses from Egypt. And now in chapter 11, he acquired so many wives and concubines that modern scholars question whether such an amount was even feasible. Interestingly, however, we'll end with this. It's always idolatry. That is the worst of the worst offenses that we can commit against God. It's idolatry. The slippery slope to idolatry was not the amassing of too many horses. It was not filling a treasury full of gold and silver. 
as bad as those things were. Rather, it was the marriage to non-Hebrew women. Women who maintain false allegiance, or rather maintain allegiance to false gods. That is what led inevitably to idolatry. Now, polygamy in of itself was wrong at all times. But just as divorce is wrong, but due to the hardness of men's hearts, the prevalence of divorce in Hebrew society forced St. Paul to define rules of decency and justice towards divorced women. So it was that God, through Moses, was forced to define rules for men who married more than one wife or men who maintained concubines because polygamy was so prevalent in Hebrew society. We'll continue on with this chapter next time.